You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good evening, church. Great to see all of you here. Hope you're doing well. More than 3 million people per year in the U.S. sleepwalk. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Sleepwalking refers to getting up and walking around while in a state of sleep. Now, sometimes it may mean sitting up in the bed or it may mean actually getting up and walking around. But typically, according to the Mayo Clinic, sleepwalking usually occurs early in the night, often one or two hours after falling asleep. Sleepwalkers can get out of bed. They can walk around. But typically, they don't respond or they don't communicate. And... Um, they're difficult to wake up, and usually in the morning, they don't, they don't even realize what happened. Now, does anybody here sleepwalk? You just want to be, okay, so we got, we got one. Nobody else sleepwalks? Two? All right, so I sleepwalk. Okay, so sometimes it may just mean like sitting up in bed real fast, and I'll just start mumbling off something. Um, occasionally, I'll get up and walk around, but used to, it would, it would scare Courtney. Now, she just tunes me out most of the time. I've knocked a picture off the wall. I've pulled on uh, um, curtains. I've done all kinds of things. Um, Last week, one night, I was the only night that I remember, I was heading toward the stairs. She was like, you're going toward the stairs. So she actually got involved that night. But uh, typically, I don't remember what happened. You know, I remembered that one. But but sometimes, you know, hey, do you remember what you were talking about last night? I have no idea. Uh, But it, it happens sometimes. Robert Wood knows something about sleepwalking. Robert Wood was a chef in the UK for years, and he began sleepwalking at as, as early as age 14. His parents would hear him downstairs sleepwalking. Well, fast forward that a number of years. When he was in his 50s, he was sleepwalking four to five times a week. And he would get up, and because he was a chef, guess where, where he would go when he, when he was sleepwalking? He went to the kitchen. And one night, he made an omelet one night. He was pouring cereal, pouring milk into a bowl. He was setting the table. He turned the TV on really loud. He turned all the lights on in the house, all kinds of things. Probably drove his wife crazy. One night, he and his wife were in Spain, and they were on the ninth floor of, uh, I guess, a hotel. And so he was sleepwalking, and he goes out and puts one leg over the edge. And that's when his wife grabbed him. And so can you imagine just the terror, she, just every night, like, I wonder what he's going to do tonight. I wonder, what's, what's he going to get into? The interesting thing about sleepwalking is the person, person looks perfectly awake. The eyes are open, fully functioning physically, yet they are unresponsive. Sleepwalking is very similar to an unsaved person. Physically, they are fully functioning, but inwardly, they're not alive. They're unresponsive to God. The Bible calls it they're spiritually dead. They were dead in their sins. And so tonight, they're indifferent to God, and they need to be woken up spiritually. So that is the message Jesus had for the church tonight. We're back in Revelation. I started this series at some point last year, and you know, I try to, when I get an opportunity, get back to that. So tonight, we're in Revelation 3, We'll look at the first six verses. We're just going to walk slowly through this. The church at Sardis. We're talking about the sleeping church at Sardis. The sleeping church at Sardis. Last time we talked about the tolerant church at Thyatira. 
Tonight we'll talk about the sleeping church at Sardis. Jesus had a strong word for this sleeping church. He wanted them to wake up. In fact, that's what he tells them. Wake up. He wants them to wake up before it was too late. So we're going to talk about what does that mean? What did it mean to them? What does it mean for us? And so as we begin looking at, at Revelation 3, these are the words of Jesus. He had a message for this church just like he did for the other ones. Now, Sardis... This study has been absolutely fascinating. This, this city has so much history, and it's tied directly to what Jesus is saying to this church. So we've got to talk about a little bit of history so that we understand why Jesus was saying that, what it would have meant to the original hearers. Sardis was located in modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor, about 30 or 40 miles southeast of Thyatira. Had a very decorated past. The city went back as far as 1200 BC, and it was uh, about the sixth century BC. It was at its height. It was wealthy. It was influential. It was the capital of what was known as the Lydian Kingdom, and uh, one source called Sardis the strongest place in the world. It was located in the middle of the Hermus River basin. It's a large fertile plain near Mount Tmolus. There was a road that ran right through it that went all the way to Susa in Mesopotamia. So it was easy for people to trade there, and it was easy to, to access. The name Sardis is in the plural form. So it means it was the city was divided into two parts. There was an upper city and a lower city. I've got some pictures here I want to show you. So there's an upper Sardis and a lower Sardis. The upper part of the city sat on top of a hill. Um, you'll notice there, see the top of the hill there. Actually, a little bit to the left is my understanding. That's where the city was. So down here is the lower part. And this was, is what's left over of the temple of Artemis. There was a temple there, just like there was one in Ephesus. And there were 78 columns that were 58 feet tall. And you see there, obviously there were two that are still remaining. This is the lower part down here. And up there was the upper part to the left. That's, that's the upper part of Sardis. Now, if you're just looking at that, don't you think it would be really hard to get up there? Exactly. So because of that, people thought this city cannot be penetrated. There's no way you can defeat this city. I mean, how are you going to climb those, those walls and so, or those, those cliffs? They're too steep. That cliff, uh, the upper part, sat about 1,500 feet above the lower part of Sardis. So it was impressive. And... Um, but we're going to find out a little bit later what, what happened. Now, in the lower part, there was a Roman theater, there was a stadium, and the temple that we talked about. And so Jesus comes and he says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the seven spirits, there was also mentioned in Revelation 1 and verse 4. I interpret that as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And the reason is because what happens here can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about bringing new life to someone who's dead spiritually. That can only happen by the power of the Spirit. In John 6, 63, John said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help. So I believe this is talking about the Holy Spirit. And then he says, uh, the seven stars, which it, you have to go back to chapter one, but it's talking about the seven angels of the churches, which I've said before, I believe are the seven pastors. So it says, uh, Jesus has them, uh, the word of him who has the seven spirits. So em em emphasizing the control, the power of Jesus, that these churches, 
even though they may not be obedient to him, he has full authority and control over them. He has complete control of your situation tonight and my situation. He is in complete control. Sardis belongs to Jesus. And if the people would surrender to him, then he would be able to move in and take over and and do amazing things in their life. So let's look at the message he had for them. He begins, I know your works. Now this sounds familiar. This is what Jesus said to Thyatira, to what he's going to say to Philadelphia, to Laodicea, to Ephesus. So that's, that's not uncommon. But he says, I know, I know your works. I know intimately and thoroughly, I know your works. So what, what are your works? Well, you know, at, at Thyatira, Jesus said, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But here, you, you don't see a list like that. He, um, he just says, you have a reputation. That was, that was the greatest work they had was a reputation. The word just means name. You have a name. You, you, you have a name. That's, that, that's your greatest work. And, and, and one source said, the only commendation that Sardis received was a label it had given itself. And there, there was nothing that they could be commended for. This was the only church. Uh, Jesus gave less praise to this church than he did to any other except Laodicea. And it didn't receive any. So this church is at the bottom, close to the bottom of the barrel here. And so um, he says, you have the reputation of being alive but you were dead. Now, the question I struggle with for a while on this is, what does it mean, what does dead mean here? What does it mean? Does that mean spiritually dead? Or does that mean that they were saved, but they were just spiritually lethargic? They weren't in fellowship with Jesus. What, what does that mean? And so, the best I can tell, it means spiritually dead. That means they were unsaved. And here's, here's why I believe that. Because this same word for dead is used in Ephesians 2, verse 1 where it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But you know, later in verse five, it says, but God made you alive. Now this word for dead is also used in the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15, where it says, uh, remember the prodigal son left home and he's out in the faraway land. And it says, the father says, for this son was dead and is alive again. Now, was he physically dead? No, he, he, obviously remained alive, but he was out of the fellowship of the family. And so because of that, I believe he's, he's, Jesus is saying here, you're dead. You're dead spiritually. You're not in fellowship with me. You're not in the family. You're, you're not alive spiritually. You know, you, you have this reputation of being alive. You, p- people around town think that you're a genuine church. They, they think you're saved. Uh, located seven miles from Sardis was a famous cemetery where famous kings were buried. And perhaps Jesus is saying, church, you're really more like that cemetery right outside of town. You're dead spiritually. You're not alive. Vance Havner said this, it was a busy church with meetings every night, committees galore, wills within wills, promotion and publicity, something going on all the time. It had a reputation of being a live, wide awake going church, but it had no such name with the Lord. Jesus knew the true condition of their hearts. I got two points for you tonight and then three benefits of being alive with Christ. So the first point is this. Our external credibility can conceal internal indifference. Our external credibility can conceal internal indifference. It means we can look great on the outside, but inwardly be cold, be dead to Jesus. We can be unsaved, but everybody else thinks we're saved. 
Apparently, people in Sardis, they thought well of the church there. It had a history of faithfulness, of being alive. It had that reputation. But at some point, they stopped preaching the gospel. And because of that, people weren't getting saved. And people just kept coming in the church. And, 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 and they were unsaved, unregenerate people. And so uh, externally, things may have looked good, but, they, but God could see the heart. And he says, hey, you look really good from the outside, just like the Pharisees. You do all the right things, but you're not alive spiritually. I don't have a relationship with you. Uh, remember back in uh, 1970, November 14th, a charter jet flew back into West Virginia. I believe it had been in North Carolina. Southern Airways Flight 932. And it was approaching an airport and right before it got to the runway, it crashed just short of the runway. All 75 people were killed. It's known as the worst sports-related air tragedy in U.S. history. The plane was carrying 37 football players from Marshall University. Remember, they did a movie about this some years ago, We Are Marshall. Uh, eight members of the coaching staff, 25 boosters, the, the, whole, the pilots and the crew, they were all killed. It was tragic, not just to the university, but to the town of Huntington, West Virginia. Now, as the university tried to move forward, they weren't even sure if they could play the next year. They weren't even sure they could field a team. They had lost, you know, a good number of their players and almost all their coaching staff. But they hired a new coach, and they did their best to move forward. They got some walk-ons and freshmen, and they tried to, to field a team as best they could. Uh, and they did. They, 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 you know, when the season opened, they had a new coaching staff. They had players out there, but this was not the same team as Marshall 1970. This team was completely different. They may have had Marshall on the front of their jersey, but this was not the same Marshall team. And the school knew it, and the city knew it. Maybe others, other people may not be able to tell, but it was Marshall in name only. And I wonder how many Christians, hopefully that's not the case here, but just anywhere around town, they have the name Christian, but inwardly Jesus would say, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You've never repented of your sins. You've never received me, Jesus would say, as your Lord and Savior. And so that, this is the church at Sardis. They didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. At least most of them did not. Uh, thankfully, there was a remedy to this spiritual condition at Sardis. Uh, Jesus gives them two commands here. Uh, then there's three commands in verse 3. The first two uh, the first one is, wake up, wake up, he says. It really means be watchful. Be is, is the command there. Watchful is a different word. The word for watchful or wake means to be in constant readiness, to be, to be on the alert. Be, be alert, be watchful. It can mean to keep zealous watch over. It, it, the idea really is wake up and keep on watching. Come on, church, wake up, keep on watching, he's saying. And so... Um, Although the church was dead, there was time for it to wake up. This is the grace and mercy of God. Jesus is telling them, so hopefully they will turn to him and they'll wake up. It's, it's part of his grace and mercy. The, they needed to repent of their sins and turn to Christ. Um, the church had blended in just with the pagan culture there in Sardis. So Jesus is telling them, wake up. Come on, church, wake up, he says. And um, this is not the first time anyone in Sardis had fallen asleep on the job. Uh, this is where history again comes into play. In the 6th century B.C., there was a king of Sardis named Croesus. Croesus 
decided he was going to attack Cyrus. Remember Cyrus, king of Persia? You have to read, read about him and I believe it's the book of Ezra. So Croesus goes to attack Cyrus and he thinks, well, you know, he's not going to come after me. So Croesus goes back for the winter to Sardis. Well, Cyrus decided, no, I am going to go after Croesus. So Cyrus goes to Sardis. He, he camps around the city and he's trying to figure out how in the world can I get up to the top of that city? How, how can I do this? I don't, I don't know how. It looks pretty intimidating. And so one night, uh, while the soldiers are there, uh, one of the soldiers at Sardis is looking out over the wall and his helmet falls. And so he takes some stairs down and the Cyrus's soldier is watching this. He takes some stairs down, opens a secret door, grabs his helmet and goes back up. Well, the Cyrus's soldier had just watched that. He's, he goes, ding, ding, ding. I figured out how to get into Sardis. And so Cyrus's men climbed, at least some of them climbed that steep hill, opened the door and had complete access to the city because no one was watching over that particular area of the wall. They weren't being watchful. And you think, man, that's, it's tragic. And it was tragic. About 300 years later, the same thing happened again. In 214 BC, um, there was a, another king named Antiochus, uh, either Antiochus II or, or Antiochus III. Any, here it is, Antiochus III, 214 B.C. He was reading how Cyrus attacked the city. And so he just said, well, hey, I think I'll do the same thing. And so there was a man named Lagoras. He climbed the steep hill, accompanied by 15 men, and walked right into the city. And they weren't watching the city. The same thing happened twice. And so after that second invasion, the city of Sardis began to decline on the world stage. And it no longer had the influence that it once did. And so it, it too had a reputation, but it was not alive as it was years ago. See how all this is tied together? Now the church was alive at one point, but it no longer, it was living off a reputation just like the city was. It's It's fascinating. And so Jesus, so this, they would have heard that and surely the residents would have gone, yeah, I've heard that story. They were, they weren't watching the city and, and the, we were invaded and we haven't been the same since. And, and then they go, oh, Jesus is telling me I need to wake up spiritually. And so it was, it was a word for them. Wake up and strengthen what remains, Jesus said. Strengthen means confirm it, establish it. It's a command. It carries a sense of begin to strengthen, start strengthening. But the question is, what, what, are, what are they supposed to strengthen? Well, they're supposed to strengthen what remains. What is it that remained? There was still biblical truth in the church because years ago it had been taught. And so Jesus is saying there's still biblical truth there in the church. Strengthen it. Begin to strengthen. Begin to teach it again. Begin to, to go back to the gospel. Teach the word of God there. Begin to do it. And when you do that, people will start getting saved. People will turn to Christ. And so they needed to prioritize biblical teaching. And so Jesus said, strengthen it. He said, um, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus said, I have a standard for you, church, and you've not reached that standard yet. But guess what? There's still time. This is a warning, but it's also a word of grace. There's still time, he's telling them. There's still time for you to reach your potential. And so it should, it should have motivated them. It, it should motivate us. Jesus has expectations of us. He has, he has work for us to do. 
I remember Dr. Hendricks, Dr. Howard Hendricks telling us, men and women in a room training for ministry. He was, the best I can remember, he was 78 years old at this time. And he, this is what he would say. I, I, I don't know how many times he said it. I heard him say it at least once. Here, here's what he said. My greatest fear for you, men and women, is that you will succeed at doing the wrong thing. That was his greatest fear. You will succeed at doing the wrong thing. In other words, you, people will think you're great. You will be going down this road. You will think you're a success, and you will get to the end of your life and go, I was successful at the wrong thing. I, you know, whether it's seeking people's approval or whatever it is, translate that into your life. You think, do you, you don't want to get to the end of your life and think, I was successful at the wrong thing. I made it about money. I made it about being popular. I made it about comfort. Whatever it is, then get to the end of your life and go, I was successful at the wrong thing. I mean, yes, you're still saved, but, but you've wasted a life. Uh, last night I was at, um, one of our life group leaders had a, his niece died last week. We prayed for her last week. You remember Morgan? We prayed for Morgan. Morgan died last week. She died last Thursday. She's 20 years old. And so I drove up last night with three of my boys up just around Rome, Georgia. We went to the visitation. We waited in line about an hour. And, and while in one of the rooms we were waiting, they had the screen on there and they were just showing, you know, they're flipping pictures. And you know what, Morgan, it was apparent to me. I didn't know Morgan. I know her aunt and uncle. I got to meet, I got to look in the eyes of her mom. I could see the hurt, I could see the pain in her mom's eyes. You know what it was clear to me Morgan was successful at? Relationships. She was really successful at relationships. They had to wait an hour just to, just to get up to where, to where the family was. She was successful at that. And so you just saw picture after picture after picture with people, with family, with friends. There weren't, there weren't picture, pictures with her holding money up. There weren't pictures with her that I remember holding a degree. I mean, yeah, I think there was a cap and gown in one, but she was successful at building relationships and, and, and people. And as far as I know, she was a believer. I hope she was. That, that, that's what she was successful at. And so I hope that as you think, I mean, what, what is it God wants me to be successful at? One, it would be walking with Christ. It would be being a Christian and being in fellowship with him. And then, but you think, as for us as a church, is helping people know Christ and live for him. There's a lot of things we, be, we can be successful at as a church, but that, that, that's the main thing. That's the standard that Jesus has for us. We're going to make disciples until he returns. And so Jesus has three, 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 word, three commands here in verse 3 that he tells them. He says, remember, keep, keep it, and repent. Those are the three commands. Remember, keep, and repent. So he says, remember. First, this church needed to remember what it had received and heard. Now, the order is really backwards. Typically, you would think you hear it first, then you receive it. But he's saying, remember what you've received and heard. They needed to remember the rich spiritual tradition the church possessed. They needed to recall the past biblical truths that were taught to them. And, and the idea is that, hey, you don't just need to think about it, but it needs to, it needs to affect your present life. And so uh, the term for heard it means to probably talk about the gospel. Remember the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Remember when the gospel was preached there in Sardis. Remember that. And, and received, apparently some people had received the gospel. So the church wasn't completely dead, but the majority of people were, were not saved. So think about, go, go back. Remember when the gospel was preached there. And then he says, you know, I want you to keep it. It's a command. Keep on keeping is really what it means. 
And the, the question is, well, keep what? What am I supposed to keep? Well, you have to go back to verse two. Keep what remains. What remains was the biblical truth. Obey and keep the biblical truth that remains, that is still there in the church. It's talking about obedience. And then finally, he said the church needs to repent. So remember, keep it, and then repent. And repent is just talking about a change of heart, uh, a change of mind that leads to a change of heart. Remember and keep refers to an ongoing, like a mental process. I'm going to reflect upon this. I'm going to think about it. But repent implies a quick and decisive action to change directions. Notice it didn't say, remember, keep it, and have regret. It didn't say, well, we all of us have regrets on, on things, but it didn't say have remorse. It doesn't say have regret because regret refers to, well, I'm just, I'm just so remorseful. I'm just, I'm just so, I just regret that I ever did that. He says, no, 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 you need to repent, have a heart change, turn back to God, ask him of, for, ask him for forgiveness. And so when God convicts you and I of something, we need to immediately go to him and repent and say, Father, forgive me. Lord, I confess this to you. And then at that, at that very moment, we're, we're cleansed and we're restored to fellowship with him. Um, the, it's, when, we, when we don't, we harden our hearts. When we say, no, I'll just do that later. You know, God's, God's put something on me. I'm just, I'm just going to do it later. I'll get to it later. Next time I hear it, maybe I'll respond at that time. If we do that, we're in danger of hardening our hearts. And next time, we may not do it. Next time, our heart may be so hard, it may just bounce right off of us. We've, uh, when we moved into our home, we had all these roots in our yard just from trees that have been there over the years. And so they're just irritating because it's hard to grow grass. It's, you try to mow the yard, you're bouncing over these roots. And so thankfully, the ground has been so soft lately. Man, we've been uprooting some, some roots out of the yard. And you can do that because the soil is soft. It's easier to work in. It's easier to pull those things out of there. And so when, 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 when our hearts are soft, man, that's a great soil for the Holy Spirit to just to begin to put his finger on some things and say, man, that, you know, when you said that the other day, that, yeah, well, that really wasn't Christ-like or, you know, that really wasn't true when you exaggerated that. And, and he begins to put his finger on some things. And, and, and the wisest thing we can do to say, is say, yes, Lord, Father, forgive me. I confess it to you. I, I was wrong. Lord, Lord, have mercy. And, and if, if we don't, then our heart just becomes hard. And so uh, look at the rest of verse 3. He says, if you will not wake up. See, wake up is the theme of this whole passage. It's the same word in verse 2. If you will not wake up, if you will not be watchful, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now think back to what we've already said about the city. They were invaded twice, and they weren't expecting it. And now Jesus is saying, I will come. And you will not expect me. You don't expect a thief to come. That's the whole point. They're, they come at an unexpected moment. And so Jesus is saying, I, I'll return. I, I believe he's talking about the second coming here, just like he did in Matthew chapter 24, when he says, you know, you're not going to know. I'm going to come at an unexpected time. You're not going to know the day or the hour I'm going to come. And so just as Sardis was surprised at its enemies coming into his city, they're, gonna, they're not looking for Jesus. They're going to be surprised when he comes back. And so they're, they're not going to be ready to meet Christ. And so here's our second point. Our internal indifference leads to judgment unless we get right with God. Our internal indifference leads to judgment unless we get right with God. See, resident Sardis, Sardians is what one source said. The Sardians, they thought they were safe. 
They thought they were saved, just like they thought they're safe from their city, just like many people in church today think they're safe. They're not, they don't have a relationship with Christ, but they think they're safe. They're indifferent to him. And so he's saying, wake up, wake up, wake up, church at Sardis. Wake up, Christians at Valleydale. And, and some of you, hopefully we're saved here tonight, but even if we are, we may not be making disciples as we should. We may be lethargic spiritually. And he's saying, wake up, wake up, get, get back to what, what, what you're supposed to be doing. Be successful at what is, is what's going to matter most to Christ and to the kingdom. Verse four, the tone changes. Okay, we just got a few more verses here. Yet, that's a strong conjunction, so things are changing. So he's addressed the, the sinful majority. Now there's a spiritual minority that are still left. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. There's a few. There's a few people in Sardis. Notice how he identifies the Christians. People who have not soiled their garments. Isn't that interesting? He didn't talk about their belief in Christ. He talks about the purity of their life. Sold their garments. It's just a metaphor for holy living. They were known for holy living. In a city that was known for the dye industry, clothing was important to them. They paid attention to what people wore. But this is, this is a metaphor. He's saying, you know, they, th- these Christians were identified by their holy living. They weren't soiled. They weren't polluted by the things of the world. They, they, they didn't blend in with the culture. They were distinctly Christian, and they, they were easily to, easy to spot. They had not polluted themselves. And so Dr. Adrian Rogers said years ago, no change, no Christ. No change in your life, no Christ. In other words, if, if, you're not, if you haven't changed, then you haven't placed your faith in Christ. When we come to Christ, man, there is an immediate, immediate change in our life. And, and God begins to deal with us. And Jesus said, um, people who have not sold their garments, they will walk with me in white. These are the Christians. They will walk with Jesus in white, for they are worthy. In the Persian Empire, the king's most trusted friends were allowed to walk with him in the royal garden. And he's, Jesus is saying, you, you, you'll get to walk with me. Remember all the way back to Genesis 5 and 6. Remember, Enoch walked with God Remember the rest? And he was, and he was not. He was no more. Remember Noah? A righteous man walked with God. See, just to have fellowship with God, to have that deep, intimate fellowship with God. It means to have a personal relationship with him. In the Roman world, citizens wore white for celebrations, for festivals, for military victories. So believers in Christ will one day be clothed in white garments. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, remember in Matthew 7, 17, verse 2, when Jesus was transfigured, it says his, 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 uh, it was bright, bright white is what uh, he was dressed in. His clothing became white as light when he was transfigured. So white symbolizes victory, purity, holiness. So in a city that had been defeated at least twice, Jesus is saying, when you're with me, you will walk in victory. And man, there is a victory that comes in the Christian life. Remember in Romans, you are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. When we are in fellowship with him, there is a victory that is in our life. Yes, there are still struggles, but there is victory over sin. There are moments of incredible, deep fellowship with Christ. That's that's just part of being a child of God. He says, you will walk with me. You will have victory. You you will be close to me. Then verse 5, the one, now he's going to give us three um, three benefits of being alive in Christ. For those 
who in Sardis, and they apply to us who have placed our faith in Christ, three benefits of being alive in Christ. I hope, hope this encourages you. First, we will be dressed in white. We will be dressed in white. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. That is, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres in their faith. At the very end, when we see Christ, we will be clothed in white. Now, white garments, it's a visible picture of our justification before God. But think, the imagery behind this, think back to Zechariah 3. Remember Joshua, the high priest, says he was in filthy garments. Remember that? Satan was accusing him. Well, um, it says the angel, it says he, uh, he clothed him. Um, he says, I have taken your iniquity away, the angel said, from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And that has already happened to us who've placed our faith in Christ. From God's perspective, we're already clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But here it's talking about a future time at the marriage supper of the Lamb where we're going to be clothed in white garments. And we're going to be with Jesus. So that's what we have to look forward to. That's one, one benefit. Then the second one, he says this, And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Here's the second benefit. Our relationship with Christ is secure. Our relationship with Christ is secure. Uh, I saw just this morning when I came in, there's a book out there by Charles Stanley called Eternal Security. This is a doctrine of eternal security. That our relationship is, is secure. So there's a double negative here where Jesus says never. There's actually two words, two negative words there. We would say never, ever. It really means he, Jesus is saying, I will never, never. I will never, never blot you out of the book of life. Now, the book of life, you have to, there's several uh, references in scriptures talking about a book. You have to go all the way back to Exodus 32. Remember after the golden calf incident when, and Moses intercedes for the people and he says, forgive their sin if you don't blot me out of your book. And, and, God, and, and God says, I will blot the one out of the book who sins against me. Um, and so that was the first reference. Then Psalm 69, verse 28, refers to a book of the living. Daniel 12, verse 1 says, Those will be delivered whose name is found written in the book. Luke 10, 20, Jesus said, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Philippians 4, 3 refers to names in the book of life. The idea is that when our names are written in heaven, we have citizenship in heaven. We have a permanent residence there. And so uh, there's a book of life mentioned in Revelation 20. At the great white throne judgment, when unbelievers are judged for their rejection of Christ. In other words, their name is not found in the book of life. And so they're judged eternally for that. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I will never blot out his name? Blot means to wipe away or means to erase. Well, one theory, and this, I'll be honest, this is not without its problems. But one theory is this, that people's names were, were written in the book because Jesus died for all people. This is, this is one explanation, that when Jesus died and paid for the sins of the world, every person's name was written in this book. And, that, and your, that name stays in the book until we die. And for those who do not receive Christ as Savior, it's erased. And when it comes to Revelation 20, the book is open, and then those without Christ, their name is not there. That's, that, that's one one theory of, of what that is. The point is here, it's, it's presented in the positive. Jesus is saying, I will never, ever blot out your name. 
When you receive Christ, we are eternally secure. Our names are written in the book of life. Jesus said, John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The third and final benefit of being alive with Christ is our names are pronounced before God. Oh, our names are pronounced before God. Don't you like to hear someone call your name? You know, my dad would tell me that numerous times. People like to be called by their name. Jesus is going to say our name before the Father. Confess means to acknowledge something. Ordinary in public, ordinarily in public, to claim, to profess, to, to praise, referring to a profession of allegiance is what it's talking about. It's, I, I'm professing allegiance to this person. I'm associating with this person. It's a strong word that refers to acknowledgement before the courts. So th- this is not a new concept. Jesus said this back in Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So in the ancient world, one's name represented his or her core essence or chief characteristic. So at the judgment, the way it's presenting Jesus here, he's not just a witness. He's the judge. He's the one who's telling the Father, he comes in, he does not. She comes in, she does not, because I, I don't know her. I don't know him. I, I, I know him. And, and, or, or like you read elsewhere, Jesus said, I will say to you, I do not know you. I, 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 I never knew you. And so Jesus is the one who's confessing the names of his people in the book of life before the Father. He's saying, I will, I will confess his name for every believer in Christ before my Father and before his angels. You know what it's like, this is nowhere in comparison to being before Christ, but what it's like to be in a line somewhere and your credit card's declined. You know what I mean? You know, for whatever reason, maybe you put it in the wrong number or maybe insufficient funds, hopefully not, but it can happen. You know, just, you know what it's like? And you got people waiting and it's embarrassing, but you know what? No one's saying anything. Everybody knows it's an awkward moment, but imagine if the cashier just said insufficient funds, that'd be pretty embarrassing. What if they said your name, you know, you looked at your card and Barry has insufficient funds. That'd be pretty embarrassing. Now, what if, you know, Jesus is not going to be funny, but if he says, I, I don't know him. Just the tragedy of that. And for all of eternity, we'd be experienced, those who without Christ experience the wrath of God. Oh, but Jesus says, if you're a believer in Christ, I will confess your name. I will say, this one belongs to me. I am loyal to this one because he received me as, or her as, uh, uh, received me as Lord and Savior. And so, Jesus, again, ends the message as he did before to the other churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. Hear is is really strong there. It means listen. Listen what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not just the word of John. This is the word of God. The Holy Spirit is speaking to the church at Sardis saying, wake up. Wake up, church. Repent and go back to Christ. Remember the gospel that was shared with you. And, and for us, I believe, as best I can tell, most of us are saved. It's probably a word of wake up and get busy sharing the gospel again. Wake up from lethargy. Wake up from trying to be successful at all these other things, which are good things, but they're not the best thing. 
and wake up and get busy doing what Jesus has called us to do as a church. Because in, we, have, we have no guarantee that 20 years from now, this church will be filled with believers. We don't have any guarantee. This church may in 20 years be just have a great reputation in the community, but be as dead as a church at Sardis. So we have to be busy sharing the gospel and helping people know Christ and live for him. And if we do that, I think we'll be in good shape. The temple of, at, at Artemis at Sardis was impressive, but it was never finished. Sardis had an impressive past, but it was in the past. What did their future look like? What does your future look like? Is Christ Lord of your life? Are you sleeping spiritually? Or are you making disciples for Christ? <clears throat> A number of years ago, I heard uh, Bobby, Dr. Bobby Welsh. He told this story. I wish he were here to tell it because he is unbelievable. He was a longtime pastor at First Baptist Church in, in um, Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, you probably heard of faith. Remember the faith evangelism uh, method? He was the one who started that. Remember F is for forgiveness and A is available and I think I is impossible the T is turned and H is heaven. It was just a, a method of sharing the gospel. And so I was at a church that we did faith and we'd go out on Tuesday nights and we'd visit people and uh, we had training and we had uh, two faith banquets a year. So Dr. Welch came and spoke at one of our faith banquets. Before Dr. Welch was in ministry, he was in the military. <clears throat> he was a, a paratrooper, um, a jungle expert. He was um, a ranger and he was a Green Beret. All of those things. And so he told this story, uh, it's in one of his books as well, is that one night he was in the jungle of the North Central Highlands of Vietnam. And he was leading a group through there. And so they had pushed hard one day and they, they came down to rest at night. And so they took some cardboard and put it on the ground for them to sleep and put, a, <clears throat> put some, like a poncho over them to protect them from the dampness of the, the mountains there. And so... He said every person had a foxhole buddy. And so the idea was that one person would sleep for an hour and then while the other person stayed awake and then they would switch, you know, off and on like that all night. And so um, <clears throat> Dr. Welch had also had a foxhole buddy. His name was Sergeant Watts. And they would take turns as well going around, crawling around and making sure that at least one person was awake in the foxholes. So Dr. Welch said it came time for him to, to do his, his tour. And so he He's crawling around. He's being really quiet. And he says he, he starts crawling around and he hears snoring. Now, he said um, sleeping is obviously dangerous, but a half awake person is, even, is doubly dangerous because he could just wake up and shoot him and not even, you know, not even realize, no, this is, one, this is my commanding officer here. So he crawls and he hears, he hears snoring. He comes up on this foxhole and both the guys are snoring. One of them is face down, so obviously it was his turn to sleep. The other guy is laid back like this with his neck back and his, his uh, mouth is wide open and he's snoring. And his, his weapon has fallen out of his hand and it's in the dirt, his gun. So Dr. Welch crawls up. He crawls up. You should hear him tell the story. He crawls up and he kind of straddles the, the gun so that he won't wake up and shoot him with it. He sits on it. And he said he got right in his face. He said, wake up! And of course, they both, they both woke up. And then they started fussing at each other. And he said, I'll be back in an hour or before the sun comes up to check on you, make sure you're not sleeping. 
And Jesus is saying to the church, wake up. Wake up. If you're not saved, come to Christ. If you are saved, get back to what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. Does that make sense? That was the sleeping church at Sardis. Next Wednesday night, we'll look at the, I don't know what I'm going to call the other one. It's the church of Philadelphia, the something church of Philadelphia. I'm working on it, but I'm not that far along. We'll be in Philadelphia, Lord willing, next Wednesday. Any questions about the church at Sardis? Are you all awake? <laughs> not sleeping, are you? All right, pray for Pastor and his team. Pray for Pastor Brandon. He'll be preaching on uh, Sunday. Look forward to that, Leviticus 2. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us apply this. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that you're so merciful to us. and Thank you that you would give this church time to repent and that you would send a message to it, not to berate the church, but to warn the church that they need to get right with you. And so thank you for your love for us and thank you for this sweet church here. Lord, these people, uh, I believe, love you and and they want to be doing the will of God. So, uh, Father, would you just help us by the power of your Spirit to, to be on mission every day for Christ. Lord, forgive us when we, um, when we just get sidetracked by the busyness of life or just the things of the world and we're not engaging in, in what you've called us to do and helping people know Christ and live for him. So, God, would you give us just a, a burden to reach people for Christ? Would you give us an urgency in the area of evangelism. And uh, only you can do that, but we we know that you can, and we ask that you would. Uh, Father, we do pray for Pastor Brandon. Lord, as he studies this week, Lord, would you give him insight to your word? Would you speak to hearts here on Sunday? Would you draw people to Christ? And uh, Father, we pray for Pastor, that you would keep that group healthy as they travel and tour. But I, I pray this will be more than just seeing sights, but they would have a real encounter with you. That as they visit places where uh, you use the Apostle Paul and many other things happen, Lord, would you draw them to a deeper walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at Valleydale.